Welcome to Pontifex. I'm Bree, and today we are not ranking all of the popes, but instead bringing you a very special bonus episode. One that was our most requested topic during our hiatus. As the podcast solidly moves into what is the most recognizable medieval period and explores what occupied the popes of the 9th and 10th centuries, we've seen an increase in focus on one area in the church monasteries. Religious living, and in particular, monastic privileges and independence, are prominent in our papal records, and sometimes there are only papal records. This period in history owes a great deal to monasteries. Monastic houses, from their earliest foundations to their proliferation across Europe, performed important religious, social, and cultural, and economic functions that shaped and were shaped by both the religious and secular tides of the era. They were the record keepers and power brokers. They were staples of community and education. And yet they were also a world of their own. When discussing the medieval papacy in the church, it is impossible to ignore the importance of monasteries. But can the same be said in reverse? How important were the actual popes to monastic life? These are big and complex questions. So I've brought in an actual, bona fide, proper expert to enlighten us. So to discuss the foundations, the expansions, the roles, and the many dynamics of monastic living, I am very excited to welcome back our best Carolingian friend, Dr. Rutger Kramer. Hello. Hello. Welcome back to Pontifex. Glad to be back. Thank you for having me again. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us about monasteries, and I know that this is a topic we have a lot to say on. So let's just jump right into it and start with maybe the definitions. First, we should define what is a monastery, including what aspects need to be present for monastic communities, what they generally look like, and who they are for. So I'm going to ask you the biggest and most vague question right off the bat, which is what makes a monastic community? Okay, well, so um, there's a simple answer to this and 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 a more elaborate one. And actually, the most honest answer to start with that is that um, this really depends. It's a lame answer. It's the easy way out. But every monastic community makes its own little world. That's the whole point. Mm -hmm. Um, So... That's sort of the, the cop-out answer. The easy answer is actually what makes a monastic community. It's it's actually very simple. You need a bunch of people led by an abbot who are all willing to abide by a rule. Once you have that, a church, optional, but it's handy, of course. Uh, <laughs> that already is enough. Okay. More broadly speaking, I think the image of a monastery that people nowadays mostly have, these are um, mostly like Benedictine, and I'm using air quotes now because that's kind of a contentious term in the period we are now. There, it's the rule of St. Benedict, which is by far uh, the most prolific of the rules. And there you do need a church. You do need one um, Otherwise, it doesn't work. And also a cloister, which is actually this little square thing. If you've ever looked at any kind of Western European monastery, there's always this square garden in the middle. 
And for all intents and purposes, the kinds of monasteries we will be looking at, that's what makes it a monastery. Otherwise, it's just a church with people living around it. And they're called canons. <laughs> so the moment you have a cloister, it becomes a monastery with its own little, yeah, it becomes its own little world. So, yeah. So what is the function of a monastery for the individual inhabitants who are there? So that's, um, there are many functions. Um, and here, this will be a theme for the next, uh, for the next uh, hour or so. Uh, there's always the ideal and the reality. Mm-hmm. Ideally speaking, that's where I will start most of my answer. So the ideal is that a monastery exemplified by the church, the cloister and the buildings where the monks sleep and write. Ideally speaking, this is its own little perfect paradise on earth, basically, walled off, secluded from the temptations of the outside world where pious people can have the opportunity to live the most pious life possible. The idea behind this is it's impossible to be a perfect Christian. I'm I'm exaggerating a bit, but it's impossible to be a completely perfect Christian if you have anything to do with the material world. (laughs) So the function of a monastery quite basically is it has walls so that the world does not intrude upon your prayer activities. Um, of course, in practice, this does not work like that. Um, right. Monasteries are elite communities. They are um, places, uh, they are uh, regional centers, economic powerhouses. You mentioned all that in your intro. That was a very good uh, way to start. Like they have many functions. And each of these functions represents another f- reason why people would want to be in a monastery. One thing we see quite often, for example, is that um, if you're too old to be productive, you can become a monk, uh, assuming you bring the right amount of donations. Of course, they're supposed to take you in, but if you want to learn how to read and write, if you want to become an intellectual or a scholar, um, you need to go to a monastery, at least in the period before the year 1000, because that's where you get your schooling. So you take all the other things for granted in order to get an education. Yeah, they, they're they the ones that stockpile food, basically. So um, that might be a reason to, to, to try and get into one of these communities. They are stable. They're beacons of stability in a very turbulent world. So... For all those reasons, people might want to have a go at being a monk. And that begins to answer our next question, which is what role a monastery serves socially? You've already started to touch on how they are a place for an elderly generation or for education or for stability. What other aspects of that can they serve socially? Um, So... uh, The one major function they do have... um, is tied to the ideal function they have for individuals. And that's uh, what uh, Mike de Jong, my um, teacher, one of my teachers is called the power of prayer. They wield as a community the idea in at least the popular idea about monasteries in this early medieval period is that they do all the praying so that other people don't have to. Yeah. 
okay. You don't have to go to church every Sunday. Uh, that's annoying. You have to work on the land. So have these monks do all the praying, and then that sort of offsets the religiosity of the region. Again, I want to make it very clear. I'm exaggerating a bit here, but that's a function that they do have. And this is actually, this becomes not just a social function for the region, but also a political function later on. We see from the Merovingian and the Carolingian period onwards that monasteries are being paid by aristocrats, by kings, to pray for them, for the stability of the realm, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So um, they, this beacon of stability ideal is closely tied up with the ideal function that they have as enabling people to be perfect Christians. On top of that, there are two more, more um, uh, concrete social functions, which I think we'll get into later a bit. But one is that because of their longevity, um, they serve. They kind of become long-term investment banks or uh, institutions. Monasteries have the the wherewithal and the the long. Um, in Dutch, you would say the long breath to actually um, turn an entire forest into arable land. You cannot do that as a. So that's one thing. They are stable. Yeah, they have a. A stable function in that sense. And the most important um, function they have for us historians is that they are the archives of the region. <laughs> everything, everything that's going on, uh, land donations, sales, um, wh- whose horses have escaped, uh, is being recorded. And hopefully if, name a pagan people of your choice, <laughs> didn't get to them first, that's where we know most of what we know about uh, the early Middle Ages still. But that was also a function they had then. If you mm-hmm. had a dispute over land ownership, go to the monastery. They will know. I love it. So who exists in a monastic community? And we can meld this with another question, which is how can we talk about gender in a monastic community? Um, so... Most of my work, uh, so most, and which will bleed into the rest of this conversation, uh, is on male monasteries. So, uh, which I think is what most people imagine when you talk about mm-hmm. monks or monasteries. It will be monks. It will be men. Weird, creepy-looking dudes that, like you see in the Name of the Rose, for example. So, who exists in a monastic community? Uh, men. Unless it's a convent or a nunnery, then it's women. So I think here it gets complicated. So if we start by simply going back to what makes a monastic community, a group of people led by a person living under a rule, then what you need in order for it to be a monastery is the people, preferably 12. For some reason, they think that one leader and 12 people around him is what makes... Ah, I wonder where they get that. (laughs) Yeah, there's precedent. There's precedent. <laughs> um, one of those needs to be a priest. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because you need, if you want to do daily masses or even a sequence of liturgical um, services, you need someone to actually be able to do that. The rest, it's kind of, it, it's a topic of contention if all monks were also priests. I assume that they weren't, but most of them will have been. Um, the reason I bring it up like this is that 
generally speaking, there's no functional difference in the early Middle Ages between nunneries and male monasteries in the sense that they are communities of people who engage in prayer for the region. Right. This goes so far as um, that you might say, colleagues of mine go a bit further in this than I do, that say that the mon- monastic world is actually quite gender-free in a sense because they are just perfect beings there's no temptation at all. There is, once you're mm. behind these walls, once you live the ideal, your gender becomes a non-issue. A non-issue. Um, <laughs> we live for those dad puns. <laughs> now, in practice, this doesn't always work. Um, and to sort of go for the most extreme example straight away, the one I just set up, women can be priests. So a female monastery needs a priest who visits them at mm-hmm. least once a week, which causes problems sometimes. Um, Absolutely. So in that, yeah, so here we have to be very cautious about not mixing the ideal and practice. But once you, once you sort of stick to the ideal of who lives behind the walls, who exists within the community, it's actually quite easy to talk about gender. The moment you start thinking about them as functioning communities in a larger world, it becomes a whole separate interview. (laughs) (laughs) And that is a separate interview that we're looking to do and do a whole discussion on nuns and female monastic living where we can talk about that in more depth. So we've addressed it in, in a brief term here so that we can come back to it at another time. Now, speaking of monastic living and and where you started with this discussion, which was talking about the idea of Benedictine and how that's somewhat a contentious term in this time period. Let's talk about the rules. What is the rule of St. Benedict and how does it apply in this scenario to the idea of monastic living? The rule of St. Benedict, it's a monastic rule written by St. Benedict. (laughs) Of Nursia. What this does, what this rule does, is really explain basically on an hourly or even minute-by-minute basis what your life is once you become a monk or a nun. Mm. Usually we think of this as a monk's rule, but there are many manuscripts where they just gender flip everything, and that's fine. Like it's This is one of these points where you can see that it's about people living a religious life. Right. And what makes Benedict stand out is his strange sort of, uh, the way he resolves the tension between ideal and practice, which is why he was the one that was picked out of the many rules. It's difficult to to explain what what that means. We did talk briefly in the podcast about the rule of Rodegang as well. So there there certainly were others being written at the time, but none seem to have taken off nearly as much as Benedict. Yeah, well, Crotagong is, is, is kind of the odd one out in this sense. He's a very much not a monastic thinker in the sense that what he did was try to adapt the rule of St. Benedict to the other type of community that I described, which is not monks, just people living around a church, these canons. So that's Another uh, another thing altogether. I think what I, what I should start with is just simply 
explain what a monastic rule is, and then mm. it will probably become more clear what the rule of Benedict, what makes it stand apart. So the whole point of a rule, the regula, uh, the holy rule that is being written down, is that it's written down. And by that, it becomes static. It becomes non-negotiable. Mm-hmm. So the moment you have a written set of rules, there's no room for negotiation. It becomes the ultimate arbiter. Right. Um, so which is what this ideal monk should do. You have to be obedient. You have to devote your life to God. Well, he's well. He's physically present everywhere, but he's not there mm-hmm. to actually watch your every move. So the next best thing is to have the written word as a kind of a recipe, like these are the steps you have to take in order to make it to heaven. Be that perfect Christian. Be Yeah, be the perfect Christian. So this is what the rule represents. Mm-hmm. But these monks also lived in the real world. So, of course, there was always, there would always be negotiations. There would always be like, okay, how can we do this? How can we do that? Hey, I hear of this monastery uh, two hills over. They have a different rule. They do things differently. Why can't we have that? And so forth and so on. So these rules, these written rules become actually very malleable because what's stopping you from having two or three or four rules in your library and just picking and choosing whichever one you want, which was the situation before Charlemagne decided, like, this is too chaotic, we need a single one. And his advisors tell him that the rule of Benedict is actually the most suitable one to recommend to all monasteries. For the longest time, we really thought Charlemagne and Louis de Pais forced it upon monasteries. Mm. I don't agree with that. I think they were sort of gently nudging them in the in that direction. Charlemagne gently nudging someone. Now that's an well, idea. It's, it's, <laughs> yeah, well, I don't I don't think Charlemagne really cared that much about what went on inside monastery walls. He just wanted them to remain stable and he mm-hmm. could see like Constantine could see that heterodoxy led to instability in the church. Charlemagne could see that all these different rules, especially Irish versus Roman rules, uh, led to conflict within communities that he just couldn't be bothered with because he had an empire to expand. He wanted peace and quiet inside. Yeah, so what makes the rule of St. Benedict so interesting in this regard is that it sets down in writing that it is not the final word. Oh, okay. So it's kind of a paradoxical document in the sense that it actually is the most accessible rule for being flexible about itself. It's the most self-aware of the early medieval rules. Maybe that's how uh, I could best describe it. I like that. Yeah, so it, it's big on um, what we call discretio, So rather than saying the rule has the final word, it says the abbot has the final word and the abbot has discretion. Uh, He can uh maybe allow things that are not technically allowed. But if the abbot is the right kind of abbot, it's fine. It makes a little bit more in terms of affordation for what it actually means to be a real person in the real world rather than just applying to the ideal. Yes, and it does so very succinctly. It's 73 chapters. 
Wow. They're about a page each. And they detail the liturgy, like the order in which the psalms are to be sung, a lot of technical details, how much food you can get, how much, uh, like who has which function. But it spends a lot of time on who the persons living in this monastery should be. It spends a lot of time on the perfect mm -hmm. abbot because the abbot actually is the final word. And um, it's actually funny that I now looked up how many chapters it has because the final chapter is not every practice of justice is set out in this rule. Mm -hmm. So right. the conclusion is there's more to life than just this. And that is that little paradox of writing down that this isn't the final word is what makes it so very attractive to someone who wants to sort of make sure monasteries are all on the same page. Right. Wow, that's really the shortest possible answer I could give to this question. <laughs> no, I, lo I love it. I, I see why that makes it so popular because it's so appealing and it's a lot more realistic in terms of how we discuss perfection and aspects of the soul, but as well as like what it really looks like to live day to day as a monk. Yeah. Now that we have a sort of a general bearing of, of monasteries and the rules, let's talk about the foundations and the development of monastic houses so that we can eventually get to Charlemagne and Louis the Pious. In preparing for this interview, you mentioned a prehistory of monasteries. So let's start there. What did that look like? And what aspects of a prehistorical monastery survived to like the most defined monastery idea? I won't go into like the archaeology of the communities in the deserts in the Eastern Mediterranean, because we do have very early monasteries. Uh, some of them are still kind of standing. Some of them are archaeological dig sites. Right. So we can actually go and you can go to Egypt and look at a very early monastery. And that's where it starts. These do not look at all like the monasteries that we have in the medieval West. These are mostly little huts that are grouped together with a wall around them. So they're actually more close, uh, closely related to a lot of hermits, each living in their own little cell. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the only thing that we have left of that is the idea that you have your own cell. But that was reinvented later, actually, because most monks in, in our period lived uh, slept in dormitories. They all slept together, actually. So what's left over from that initial ideal is the name, monastery. It means someplace where you live alone, but you don't actually live alone. You live together. Right. And the other bit that's really maybe stronger uh, of the legacy of these earliest monasteries is the fact that they were in a desert. The idea that a monastery or, or a hermit or a monk or whatever you want to call them can only exist in perfect isolation. I just mentioned like the monasteries in the Frankish world in Italy, in Western Europe had a wall around them. The earliest monasteries had a desert around them. They were supposed mm -hmm. to be inaccessible, harsh environments. And that idea persists. Mm -hmm. You see that throughout the centuries, you see it recurring that a monastery should be in a desert-like environment, which in Northwestern Europe is usually uh, translated to uh, a very wild forest, for example. Or the top of cliffs. Yeah, islands that are inaccessible. Here, 
allow me to be a bit cynical. For example, well, Cluny, uh, which is the end point of this development, but they also say, oh, we were founded in a desert. It was the worst place to ever be. I'm not sure if you've ever been to Burgundy. <laughs> <laughs> it's not the worst place. It's not very desolate. <laughs> no. But it needs to be in the foundation mythology of every monastery that it's paradise on earth created in the wilderness. Mm-hmm. And that is really that started with the first monasteries, the first hermits in the Egyptian deserts. And it's foundational to the entire idea of what a monastery is. Right. So you say Egypt is where it all starts. Do we know where the first monastery was founded? Like, is there a specific one we can point to and say this is our earliest example? Um, no. Well, maybe. I'm, 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 I'm not comfortable answering <laughs> this. Um, no, the oldest ones we have are in sort of roughly the southeastern Mediterranean. I'm really not sure if there's one that is generally regarded as being the oldest, but they're all kind of in that rough area between Egypt and the Holy Land, basically. Right, right. So who else should we know about when we're discussing monasteries? Who are the most standout, interesting, and influential monastic leaders, and what did they do? Well, so... Generally, the, in this prehistory phase, there's two names that stand out. The first one is uh, Saint Anthony, mm-hmm. who was the first recorded hermit. He's the first one to say, I'm sick of this. I'm going to the desert. No one disturbed me. And then he became <laughs> holy because of it, because people kept disturbing him anyway. Uh, he sets the tone. Or actually, uh, I think it's Athanasius who writes his life story. He sets the agenda for what it means to be a monk living in splendid isolation. And so St. Anthony is a foundational figure. The other one, roughly contemporaneous, if I may be so bold, is Pachomius, who's the first one to recognize that, well, living alone in the desert is actually a problem because what's stopping you from uh, who's going to check if you're actually as perfect as you claim to be? There are many hermits. I mean, it's still a thing, you know, these spiritual leaders who abuse their position. Mm. That was a thing then, it's still a thing. Now, Pachomia said, this is a problem. And we cannot really check someone in a cave what he's doing in his spare time. Are these hands really only used for prayer or... Huh? So absolutely. <laughs> which that this is a problem. Like, um, mm-hmm. I'm not sure how far we should go, but <laughs> sex is the thing that you should not do as a monk, and it doesn't matter with whom or if it's with yourself. Let's just not go there. Is the the idea? So Pachon right. says, why not live together so we can check on each other. This is not the only reason why he said it. It's also a safety thing. Uh, There's many reasons why he said we should maybe live in communities. Does he also recognize the futility of it in the sense that St. Anthony did want to go out and be a hermit and not be disturbed, but as a result of that and becoming such a revered and holy figure, people do seek them out. Is Pacomius responding as well to that idea? Maybe. This here, it's impossible to separate the myth from the reality. 
Right. It's the story that we are being fed by the hagiographers of St. Anthony, by Athanasius, saying he did not want this, but there's no way of knowing whether or not Anthony was actually seeking this out actively. It's the ideal that's being set by the story rather than the actual reality. Mm-hmm. The point is that if you're a hermit, if you're a perfect hermit, you have no function in society. Mm-hmm. If you have no function in society, why even bother? Fair. If you want to be a hermit, if you want to live a perfect apostolic sin-free life, it must be a teaching moment for the people around you. So you cannot be invisible as a holy man, mm-hmm. which is one of the other reasons why Pachomia says, why not live closer to society, but with a wall around it that people can look into rather right. than just disappearing. I think... Historically speaking, someone like Anthony would have recognized that he had a social function, but Athanasius recognized that he had to write that Anthony did not want this, even though he totally wanted it. (laughs) Of course, for the ideal. Yeah. Spending a lot of time on these two, because when all said and done, nothing much changes after them. (laughs) Like the tension that these two styles of living evoke is Mm -hmm. what defines monasticism in the centuries going forward. Then it spreads like this lifestyle, this, the idea of being enabled to be, to live a perfect Christian life, doing good for the region, being a long-term investment opportunity. That's just good business in a way, Mm -hmm. a good business model in more than just uh, economic terms. So the idea spreads and you can see it spread across trade routes. Like Christianity spread along trade routes, you can see it's no coincidence that the oldest monasteries in France are in the southwest where the traders landed, saying, wow, I saw the wildest thing back in Alexandria. Oh, said someone, we have an island here. Let's found a monastery. And that's how Lerain was founded. I'm based on these ideas. So the earliest monasteries pop up along trade routes, do you think that has more to do with Pacomius and the idea of bringing more people or a community into that sort of semi-ascetic lifestyle? Because then you're actually allowing the the visibility of something that is otherwise closed off and desolate. We're now yeah. looking at having people have just enough access to to desire or to find that appealing to then allow it to proliferate and become popular. That's actually a very good point. Yeah, I'm not sure if Pacomius intended it like that. Uh, He was not someone who actively propagated for this. Mm -hmm. But yeah, like making it more visible, making it more acceptable. Hermits, uh, stylites, ascetics were controversial figures. Monks were not. They were a safe option Mm, because you could see them. You could, you know that they were self-regulating in a way, ideally, again. Well, and that that brings us to what you said about good business, because obviously monasteries must make some sort of revenue in order to survive. So how do they make revenue? How does this develop? How does a monastery support itself? So simple answer is they worked. They worked for Mm -hmm. themselves. It's the, the old you work and prayer lifestyle. That's what monks were supposed to do. The earliest monastic rules all emphasize explicitly or implicitly you pray and you work the land and then you pray again. They were self-sufficient, ideally speaking. 
in the course of the centuries, at the moment, monasteries become more elite communities. And this is where you put the third son of the local count because you want to get rid of them, but without actually making them useless. You could always take them out if you're older two sons. But this youngest son of an aristocrat isn't going to work the land. So again, ideal versus reality. Mm-hmm. So the moment monasteries become successful, start to grow, the working and praying ideal gets shifted to working, being, for example, managing the cultivation of land rather than actually doing the cultivating. And then they get, basically, they act as landlords. They get food from the farmers who work the land that they own. Or, well, of course, monks are not allowed to own anything, but the saints in their church... The relics, basically, the relics of the saint owns the land of the monastery, which is why you cannot steal it from them. Once it's given to a monastery, what are you going to do? Sue Saint Peter because your grandfather gave them land? And so this is how they, how the successful monasteries become the self-perpetuating machine. Mm-hmm. The other thing they did was simply uh, they produced manuscripts they produced intellectual work. And it's not quite clear in, in, our, in my period. We don't really know if they got paid for it, but they definitely had patrons who would give them land or food or privileges in exchange for anything. Right. Beautiful Bible manuscripts or right. answers to questions on theology and anything in between. So they would get like, they, this What was also work writing in the scriptorium and right. somehow they made they didn't really make money technically but they did make food out of that Subsistence. and also money <laughs> <laughs> and also money yes yeah but the smaller ones i i want to re-emphasize that so the smaller ones at the start it's really they do the work mm-hmm. in between right. prayer sessions You also mentioned something very important that we need to talk about, and that is relics, because obviously relics become the absolute big business of this entire era. What can we say about the importance of relics with monasteries? So at its core, they are the backbone of any church in the land. Uh, So they need to have either a saint or uh, at least be devoted to an ideal. You cannot... Like not all the churches of the Holy Savior have a relic of the Holy Savior. So there's some leeway there. But once you have a saint, you have a relic of that saint in the altar. And the relic represents the physical presence of the saint on earth. It's a reminder of the fact that someone at some point lived on this planet who was so holy that even after death, the miracles persisted and that's right. basically proof that anyone could get to heaven. Again, the theology is a bit iffy here, but if you accept the idea that most people only get to heaven after the final judgment, saints are already there. So they were so perfect that they immediately made it up to heaven. So they're next to God. You can God's a busy man. Mm-hmm. If everyone wants to call him directly, you won't you might not get your prayers answered. But you can maybe pray to Saint, I don't know, some other saint. Like he might be slightly mm-hmm. less busy and he will tell God in his own time. That's the intercessors. Yeah, they, a colleague of mine calls them hotlines to heaven, basically. 
And that's what these relics are for. You talk to them and that corresponds to talking to the actual physical living saint in heaven because they're not dead. They're, they're just alive somewhere else. So that represents sort of the function of a relic spiritually. Yeah. But clearly a relic also had a very social context and allowed a monastery to have what we've sort of generally thrown around as soft power. So what does a relic provide as soft power or imply for its community? Okay, well, the, the first one I already mentioned, they are, bluntly speaking, they're the representatives of the community. They're the, 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 the placeholders of the community. The direct the owners of the stuff, basically. So Yes. And they, these are eternal. So once you have a saint in there and the saint's cult is being kept alive, the monastery will persist. So that's a very important ideal that they represent. Mm-hmm. Also, in a more practical sense, if you have relics of wildly, widely and wildly known saints, uh, people will want to come on pilgrimage. I didn't touch upon that, but that's a major source of income once you have a major relic, like the tunic of Christ, uh, one of the many skulls of John the Baptist. Um <laughs> Anything like Holy Cross relics were super popular. People would go on a pilgrimage there, pay a small fee to see the relic, which is income for the monastery. Uh, It's prestige for people living alongside these pilgrimage trails. So you'd want to make sure as local aristocrats or kings that the monastery stays healthy. So people will travel along the routes as well. And that's all because of these relics, basically. They are the destination that make like mobility happen. And mobility gets the economy going as well. So that's a very important function, very practical. We can be cynical about this. Obviously, the system was abused. Yes. But it wasn't strictly positive or negative. It was a function that they had, yeah. And this is a moment in where we see the difference between the two styles of early monasticism at this point, being completely cut off from society or welcoming people in on pilgrimage. So is this where this idea of community versus isolation, is this where we start to see this reconcile over the possession of relics to reconcile having pilgrims and having that role in the community versus withdrawing entirely from society? I think reconciliation is, is a good way of putting it, yes. Of course, there's more to it, but uh, the a social function of these relics is to make this conversation happen. Mm-hmm. I just said, like, after Pachomius, nothing much happened. This is, of course, not strictly true. And a lot does happen, uh, especially with the introduction of monasticism in the West. I mentioned Leran near Marseille, but a person we haven't talked about yet is St. Martin. Mm-hmm. who is, again, one of these interesting figures in the sense that he was a real person like Anthony, but there's also a very real mythology built around him. <laughs> yes, Martin is super interesting, but that's a whole different story. But his first saint's life was written while he was still alive. Wow. Yes. And that in itself sets a massive precedent. Martin... Okay is an ascetic who is alive. You can read about him. I have his address in here. You can go visit him. Hmm. 
Martin also founds a monastery. Once his relic, once he dies and he ends up being the relics of that monastery near Tours, the precedent is set. You can go visit him. Mm-hmm. So I'm not saying Martin and, and his like myth makers single-handedly set up this system, but having a St. Martin in your prehistory definitely helps open up this particular function of monasteries. Right. Because he founded his own pilgrimage center. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't active, like we have letters or well, at least letters to him. We have plausible descriptions of him interacting in life with other people, not just pagans, but also fellow colleagues. Colleagues is a bit of a weird word, but there you have it. And his life, his life story becomes insanely popular. It sets the precedent for how saints' lives are supposed to be written. Mm -hmm. Basically, if it's not a copy of St. Anthony's life, it will be a copy of St. Martin's life. Right, right. With the built-in expectation that Martin is someone who was so holy, and he, this is this is where I was getting to, Martin shows that you can be so holy that you can actually function outside of the monastery walls. You don't have to be mm. in the desert. You can be holy and a good Christian. I'm not sure if Martin agreed with this, <laughs> but his biographer certainly did. Uh, yeah, I, I love it. It's a, it's a little bit hilariously presumptuous, but it is representing something that was was very real to people, which was this desire to replicate and embody that abject holiness to the point where you could be a saint and you could be your own relic at some yeah. point. A trope that you see recurring in all these saints' lives is that the saint was mortifying him or herself to such an extent that people thought they were crazy. Yes. Don't overdo it on the holiness. But that's someone living, walking the walk and talking the talk. Absolutely. Basically. This is a great place to jump back into St. Benedict of Nursia for a moment here, because this is where we see the next sort of development away from St. Anthony. And then we have Pacomius. And then we have St. Benedict of Nursia entering the picture. So how can we characterize the differences and developments from desert monasticism and the first monasteries to what Benedict then puts forward. How does this become an institution? Ah, well, this is where the popes come in. One of the few instances <laughs> where we can actually tick this particular box. Yes. Benedict exists by the grace of Gregory the Great writing about him. Yes. I was very excited to talk about this because you sort of inferred that there is a theory that Benedict of Nursia may never have existed and that this was purely an invention of Gregory the Great. And I want to hear all about this. Oh, God. Um, well, I, I'll spare you. To, you don't really want to hear all about this. But it's, uh, <laughs> so broadly speaking, it's the idea that if you only have one textual witness to someone existing, then that might be an invention. Like if there's right. no corroborating evidence, then you could argue that this or that person does not exist. Of course, you can make this super absurd. There are people who claim that like Charlemagne never existed because we only have texts. We don't have his body or do we? I don't know. And there's this whole theory that the entire early Middle yeah. Ages was invented by... Phantom time. <laughs> oh, God, yes. So because we only have texts, so it never existed. Well, sure. I mean, there we can laugh about it. But once we get to St. Benedict, 
we really only have book four of the dialogues of Gregory the Great attesting mm -hmm. to his life. Right. So, says at least one famous German professor, he didn't exist. He is invented out of whole cloth to make monasticism an institution. Wow. There's a circular reasoning here because Gregory the Great was a monk yes. before he became Pope. So obviously he thought monastic Christianity is the best. So let's make a saint who represents this ideal. There's no way of disproving the theory, but I still think it's it's not useful in order to think of this as a purely invented saint. There are mm -hmm. instances of invented saints. Don't get me wrong. Oh, yes. <laughs> Many. <laughs> but Benedict, I think, has too big of an impact to not ever have been a real person founding a real community for which he wrote a rule that then somehow made its way to Rome. We don't know the specifics, but yeah, it's not useful to think of him as an invention of Gregory the Great. Although it would get Gregory some, some scandal points, I think. <laughs> yeah, well, again, coming back to uh, sounding like a broken record here, but the story ends up being more important than the actual person. Right, of course. Benedict's rule would not have been the important rule it became were it not for the fact that he was being backed by a pope and not just any pope, but one of the foundational early medieval popes. So obviously he has a leg up from other monastic pioneers that we don't know about. Right. Or the biggest example of this is the master. And this is a huge topic. Was the rule of the master earlier or later than the rule of St. Benedict? Was it an ah. adaptation? Did one expand upon the other? The rule of the master is longer, but they are very much alike. Mm -hmm. um, did the master expand upon Benedict or did Benedict uh, summarize the master? At the end of the day, Benedict ended up in the writings of Gregory the Great and the master is an anonymous... Right. I mean, he has a nice side career as an enemy of Doctor Who, but that's about it. <laughs> and there are more. There are the Jura Fathers. We don't know who that. Well, I, I think we do. We know their names, but that's about it. Because they didn't have this massive backing of this massively influential Pope. Mm -hmm. well, and Gregory represents that shift that's happening in the idea of monasticism at this time. And uh, very much the, the St. Martin example because he was very much the pope who everyone was like you need to kind of chill out on your holiness or you're going to starve to death because that was he was clearly very much a model of that system that was happening and so it's interesting to credit the proliferation of saint benedict of nursia with his very own very strongly influenced monastic views yeah and also i think i mean Apart from the fact that Gregory the Great is one of the few early medieval religious figures that I think is vaguely chill, uh, <laughs> most of them seem like impossible people to work with, but he is kind of as close as it gets to a normal human being from his writings. This is true, yeah. The only person he wasn't chill to was himself. Yeah, and religious minorities, let's... Uh, 
in mm, the broadcast. Well, yes, yes. But also, like Martin, like many other of these early saints, he shows that it's possible to maintain that lifestyle and also be a bishop, basically. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's what he was in the end. He was a monk who became a bishop, but retained the lifestyle of a monk, showing that it was possible, thereby opening up the institution to become the thing it became. Right. So then we see another, we're we're sort of jumping history a little bit. And obviously, anytime we're going to talk about things in a sort of narrative linear format, we're going to be slightly less detailed than we could be. But From this period, post-Gregory the Great, we move into the Carolingian era. And at this point, we really see the development of monasteries becoming tied, influenced by, and affected by secular development. So why is this happening at that period? Okay, so two major developments are taking place at the same time. And I've alluded to both of them, so very briefly um, expand upon it. First of all, The Frankish realm of, let's say, the later Merovingians up to the early Carolingians saw a clash of two types of monastic thinking. One, the Roman, the Benedictine or the Roman style. It was actually called the Roman rule by the Franks, Mm. which was a big deal, especially for the Carolingians due to their link with the papacy. They, They had invested in Rome as being their spiritual guiding light. So this is another reason to choose the rule of Benedict over some of the many others that we see happening. Mm -hmm. But uh, an equally influential monastic movement happening upon Frankish shores came from Ireland. We haven't really talked about that, but the, the British islands have this weird sort of being Christianized, then being as uh, the famous historian Peter Brown called it, unchurched. So Christianity didn't disappear, but the institutions disappeared. Mm -hmm. Except for monasteries, they persisted in Ireland. And here you see a separate type of ascetic thinking come up, which culminates in the figure of Columbanus, Mm -hmm. who also writes a rule which is much stricter than the one by Benedict. But which allows for monasteries to be much more autonomous, like less politically active. I say allows for, like being a Columbanian monastery really gives the abbot a reason not to engage with certain styles of politic. Okay. In a way, or um, being more regionally oriented, let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. And this, of course, also becomes very successful and makes its way to the Frankish world, where we see many famous monasteries founded in the Merovingian era living by the Irish rules or by a mixture of both. And these aren't the least. Like, I'd have to recheck this. I'm not sure if we have time. But uh, Luxai, I think Corby, well, bit further east, St. Gallen in, in Switzerland, which is one of the biggest monasteries we have. These, Let's say St. Gallen is maybe the best example in present-day Switzerland. This is an Irish monastery founded by Irish monks, populated by Irish monks doing Irish things, like ah, having okay. a different type of tonsure, mm-hmm. maybe possibly celebrating Easter on the wrong dates. Oh. Are, they, are they not? Oh. They're not allowed inside because they are Columbanian, so they are more isolated. Ah, okay. And 
this is an issue. These are the older monasteries. These have venerable long traditions, but that means they are less easily controlled. Yes. And Charlemagne doesn't like not having control over things. So this is a problem. So that's the first thing. And I apologize for all my colleagues working on Irish monasticism for this horrible mangling of the history, (laughs) but it's kind of how it arrives in the Frankish world. The other thing is Charlemagne and his sons, like having this sort of centralizing tendency, wanting to make sure that they don't have to deal with internal chaos. Some people think of this as reforming or even uniformizing. I don't think it went that far. Mm-hmm. I don't think Charlemagne and Louis de Pais ever enforced new rules onto monasteries, but they definitely made it very clear that if you stick to the standards set by our elite crew here in the palace, then we won't bother you. Mm-hmm. And that makes it inherently political to become Benedictine. Mm -hmm. Specifically, let's say if you're a monastery and you overtly switch from the Columbanian model to the Benedictine model, or you have a mixed rule or some random self-imposed rule and you say, oh, we are now very publicly going Benedictine or the reverse. We are Columbanian and we're staying Columbanian, so help me. That Mm -hmm. becomes, suddenly it becomes a political statement. Right. So how does this overall, adding this political statement to it and this very clear sort of declaring for or against this sort of centralizing Frankish attempt, how does this change the institution of monasticism overall? Well, I think it's it's mostly the fact that it becomes more overtly uh, politicized that changes every single monastery in like we're now very much in the Frankish world, but every single monastery is being changed on its own terms. Mm -hmm. So monasticism as an institution, I think doesn't change that much, but every monastery is being confronted with the choice. Do I play by the rules of the overlord or do I just keep doing my own thing? Right. But there is a very large, however, that is attached to this. From the top down, like for these people at court, the institution of monasticism does change. So I hope that makes sense. For us as historians, there's not that much difference, really. Let's be honest. There's not as much difference as people want it to be. Mm -hmm. But for the people at court, it does become a thing. And the reason for that is... Again, the idea that monks have to be perfect Christians. So the moment the emperor, the imperial court says, well, this rule makes you perfect Christians and the others don't. Right. That makes it their problem in a way. Mm -hmm. Particularly because this becomes a period in which members of court are investing in monasteries as well, right? So there's that factor. Yes. And we do, like some, some people have seen that there's been more investments being made in monasteries that become Benedictine. So again, we have this. <laughs> but mostly, I think what's interesting in terms of monasticism as an institution, as an ideal, as seen from the top down, what we see happen is this need to, to choose, to define, to categorize which church official goes in which 
community. And the leading figure, the name I, I've been itching to mention uh, is Benedict of Aniane, who's kind of spearheading this movement of making sure that everyone who calls themselves a monk within the Frankish Empire is recognized as such, and the rest is not. Oh. They become canons or they become just random religious people. Mm-hmm. No matter what order that they were, they were identifying as? Yeah, so I, there are no orders at this point. Right, right. Uh, in a way, this is where we kind of see Benedictinism becoming its own thing, but mm-hmm. that's the only order. The rest are just individual monasteries. And I'd be mm-hmm. very hesitant to speak of orders before Cito, before the Cistercians. Like, right. Because it's Benedictine or not Benedictine. So... Yeah. So even if they were following the rule of Columbanus, they wouldn't have seen it in that way. Yeah. I think there's a case to be made more for Columbanianism being an order than Benedictinism being an order at that point in time. But right. that, that's a whole thing. So, so in, in having them recognized as a monk or not, are both Columbanian monks and Benedictine being recognized the same way under this new sort of movement? Yes, and th- this is the major change in the institution of monasticism that we see, because mm-hmm. what does Benedict do? Rather than enforcing, so Benedict of Aniana, I'm talking about, this major, this monastic advisor, right-hand man of Louis the Pious, it's mostly associated with Louis the Pious, but he was really also a courtier of Charlemagne. His big contribution to this debate is a book, Massive of two books, but I'll focus on one, which is called the Concordia Regularum. And it's like, it's the the harmony of the rules. Mm -hmm. And what he does is he tracks down every single monastic rule he can get his hands on, copies them all into one massive tome, (laughs) just to prove that they are all, not to prove that the rule of Benedict is better, but that the rule of Benedict is the summation of all the other rules. Yes. So it's like this concordance of rules saying, look, it doesn't matter. Keep your Columbanian rule. Keep your Jura father's rule. Keep whatever you have. They're all Benedictine anyway. <laughs> right. What a fantastic resource for historians. It's actually, yeah. I mean, he, he was quite a character in a way. Uh, again, more myth than reality, but still. But I think this was a brilliant move in sort of making sure that the politicization of the monastic world did not end up becoming the emperor forcing rules Mm -hmm. upon people. It was really sort of just saying, well, why fight the inevitable is kind of what he was trying to do. And if I may have a brief digression back to the history of monasticism, if it weren't for Benedict of Aniana writing down all these older monastic rules, we would have easily been able to uh, shave off 40 minutes of this interview. <laughs> Without him, we wouldn't know many of the things that we do know. We would know Anthony, mm. but we wouldn't know many. Like his Concordia Regularum is the earliest version of many of the pre-Benedictine rules that we have. Wow. So. Fantastic resource for historians. Yes. In a way, yeah. <laughs> but what he tried to achieve, I think, is showing that it's more important to be 
a Christian living in isolation under a rule than it was to be a Christian living in isolation under the Benedictine rule, because he said it's all the same. And let's not forget the way I framed it now is him talking to individual monasteries, say, why fight the inevitable? But this book would definitely have also ended in the lap of Louis the Pious, mm-hmm. who probably did not understand a word of it. Nope. But the message would have been clear. You don't have to fight this battle. Don't die on this particular hill. So with that in mind, do we see a shift between the policies of Charlemagne regarding monasteries and the policies of Louis the Pious? Because you say that Benedict of Anjana was there for both of them. Is there a shift or is there any sort of development between the two that we need to address? Well, I I want to to sell my own book, so I have to say yes. (laughs) (laughs) I know this is your area of expertise, so I want to give you the floor. I don't think the shift from Charlemagne to Louis de Pius was that momentous, uh, mostly because their intellectual courts stayed more or less the same. Mm-hmm. There was a shift in the sense that Charlemagne was a very reactive ruler. He delegated, he waited for situations to emerge, and then he would respond, usually okay. by force or at least forcefully. Like he must have had a forceful personality to just make things happen. But he would wait for stuff to develop and then respond. This is why he didn't want to deal with all that. Not until it becomes a problem. Yeah. Louis de Pius does make it his problem because he's more, he takes a very proactive stance. He looks at the situation his father left him and seems to think, okay, I want to get this done. I want to get this categorization done now. I don't want, he doesn't want to enforce this or that rule, but he wants to force everyone to choose. Right. So that becomes a big development in terms of how Frankish monasticism. Yeah. That's the context where Benedict of Aniana does most of his work saying, well, you don't have to choose for a single rule. You just have to choose, are you a canon or are you a monk? The main difference being if you're a monk, you have no earthly possessions, you're technically isolated, you have no pastoral function in theory. If you're a canon, you're subservient to the bishop, you're allowed to have your own possessions, but you are not given the the isolation of the, the protection that a monastery gives you. Right. To us, it's a minute difference, but like... In that world, it's it's somewhat fundamental, so. Yes. So moving from that point and introducing our last figure in terms of where this episode will land in our podcast, we have one last figure to talk about. So who is Odo of Cluny? Well, Odo of Cluny is the abbot, the second abbot of Cluny. So I think the more uh, salient question here is, what is Cluny? So Cluny is this monastic experiment ironically to depoliticize monasteries in a way due to this whole carolingian movement of making monasteries an intrinsic part of the political system people start to recognize okay this isolation ideal doesn't work anymore and there are several attempts to make it work and this is where you see lay abbots come up as a sort of a compromise solution, you see the advocati, 
which in Dutch, at least, it's still the word we use for lawyers, but mm -hmm. representatives of a monastery in the world so that the abbot can remain inside. There's all kinds of compromise solutions, but none of it really works because it remains a political thing. And Cluny is then founded in the early 10th century and through various machinations of various local aristocrats who sponsor this endeavor, it's put under the patronage of St. Peter. And by definition, by an actual, by rule, thereby becomes answerable to the papacy only. Mm -hmm. So it's explicitly drawn out of the Carolingian political system and put under the protection of Rome. That happens in the early 10th century. And Odo is the second abbot of this new institution. And I mean, all due respect to Abbot Berno, but founding a monastery, that usually means lots of organizational stuff. Yeah. So Berno didn't really make an impact beyond making sure the monastery persists. Odo then becomes someone who sees the, well, I'm not calling it loopholes, but the, the potential of this papal connection and starts expanding like, he's the one who, I'm not calling him the, well, let's just call him the founder of what would become the Cluniac order. He's yeah. the one that recognizes that, hey, if you want to found a monastery or if you want to become like an under our tutelage or you want to place your monastery under our protection, you as a community automatically become beholden to nobody but the Pope because of our two-tiered connection at that point. So monasteries, communities are answerable to Cluny, who's only answerable to the Pope. So by that token, that those daughter monasteries are also taken outside of the political system. Which is an interesting sort of juxtaposition when you think about it, because Cluny was established to, to remove it from the, the politicalization of the Frankish period and how they were dealing with their monasteries. But by becoming independent and beholden only to the papacy, they become inherently political and start what is then referred to as the Cluniac reform, which becomes an entire period. Should we be conceptualizing it as a reform, as it is often referred? I think I'd be more comfortable seeing this as a reform in the modern term of the word then I would the Carolingian reforms or what Benedict of Aniana tried to achieve, for example. Like Odo did propagate his ideas. He did go around actually telling people like, hey, this is what you should do in order to be allowed to become a franchise holder, basically, if, <laughs> if that works yeah. in a way. He also becomes one of the most politically involved abbots ever yes. negotiating for the Pope. Yeah, because at that point, he becomes the leader of not just Cluny, the way Benedict of Aniana was the leader first of Aniana, and then he moves to a monastery closer to Aachen. But by that point, he relinquishes the abbacy of Aniana. Mm -hmm. So he is limited to how powerful his single monastery is. Mm -hmm. Big monasteries become powerful. Reichenau, St. Gallen, St. Martin of Tour, obviously... Yes. Fleury, these Monte are Casino. massive monasteries that wield lots of influence, but they don't hold a candle to one monastery 
with franchises all over the world, all over the known world, at least. Absolutely. That's a major difference. Like Cluny becomes the umbrella monastery under which all the others operate. So Mm -hmm. Odo and the abbots after him as well are much more powerful because they wield not just whichever lands are around their one little community, but they have authority in many monasteries, some of which are actually massive in their own right. I mentioned Fleury just now. Fleury holds the bones of St. Benedict. They have the relics of St. Benedict of Nursia. Ah. And they adopt, they opt into the Cluniac system. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's a major coup because now Fleury is, and the relics of Benedict are under the umbrella of Cluny as well, and so forth and so on. And Odo sets that particular snowball in motion, which makes him, yeah, a force to be reckoned with. And a whole new set of power brokering. Yes. And from here on in, monasticism really changes. Like from here on in, you do get orders because now you have the Cluniac order Mm -hmm. and the rest. Yes. Now there is a difference rather than, oh, well, vaguely Irish or maybe Roman. Now it's like, are you part of the Cluniac family or are you not? Right. And... That also means that the political role of these Cluniac monasteries becomes much more pronounced. Ironically, this is what they were trying to avoid. But from here on in, you get this endless repeating cycle of the order growing corrupt due to too much influence. Someone wants to go back to basics. New order set jumps up. So once Cluny gets corrupted to the point that Citeaux has to be founded, the Cistercians, uh, with their most famous, again, the second abbot, Bernard of Clairvaux. The Cistercians are actually basically saying, we are what Cluny used to be. The same way that Cluny said, we are what the Benedictine monks used to be. But there will still be independent Benedictines. The Cluniac order persists. So now we can talk about orders. Right. And then... Every subsequent order is claiming to go back to basics. That's an entirely whole other episode that we could do. It's a whole new world. Like from Cluny onwards, once that ball, once that snowball has picked up speed, everything I just said becomes invalid. We have to (laughs) reassess the entire thing. So before we invalidate all of that, because that is where we're going to be in this podcast at this point, let's talk about culture and liturgy and legacy. So as I said in the intro, the world owes a great debt to the monastic sphere for the preservation, creation, and proliferation of all sorts of culture. So what sort of culture do we owe to the monasteries? Well, monastic culture, of course. (laughs) An easy answer. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's difficult to, to, to isolate what we owe to the monasteries, uh, especially, and here I really have to emphasize, we're talking about like the world before Cluny, like it becomes mm-hmm. easier to isolate it the closer we get to now. So most of culture that we have now, we owe to monasteries because the advantage of being the record keepers is that You can keep your own records. Mm -hmm. So most of what they wrote down is what we know about the culture at the time. Most of 
the innovations they would make, these monks, were kept for posterity. We don't know if there was some brilliant mind discovering gravity already in the year 763 because it just wasn't written down. We do know what the monks wrote down, so that's what is being kept. This includes most, I think with one or two examples, most of the classical Roman literature Mm -hmm. that's all recopied under the Carolingians, basically, because the Carolingians want to preserve, they want to make sure that perfect Latin is being spoken in church. If you speak the wrong kind of Latin, the entire prayer becomes invalid. It has to be perfect. So mm-hmm. who writes perfect Latin? Well, the old Romans. So let's re- make sure that we preserve all those texts so we can see what good Latin looks like. Mm, right. So, yeah, no Virgil if it weren't for monks, basically. So what kind of purpose did the creation of like art and music have for the monks? Because we know that these were centers that they were creating art, that they were creating music, not just archival culture, but new culture. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, it's a nice, we're almost back to the start, that, like the art, not just visual art, not just manuscripts, but also, uh, you point out, music especially as well, all comes back to this initial ideal of what a monastery is, which is essentially a prayer factory it's a place where perfect liturgy perfect religion is being practiced unimpeded by worldly concerns Mm -hmm. if you do it wrong the thinking goes it doesn't count so we have to make sure we do it right (laughs) what counts as doing it right shifts from generation to generation right so thinking about music thinking about the language in which you're allowed to preach, thinking about is poetry allowed or not, all comes down to the question, what is the perfect way to worship God? The perfect prayer, right. Yeah, and sometimes this goes quite far. Like there's there's whole discussions about whether or not polyphony is allowed in music, for example. Mm-hmm. Is that too beautiful? Might that be the devil's work? Or is this actually... <laughs> what an choir of angels is supposed to sound like. Right. Same goes for the visual arts. Should we be abstract or as realistic as possible? Should we, for example, in the Baroque period, dazzle, dazzle the people who visit us so make sure that this looks like what we imagine heaven looks like or should we be as restrained as possible so Mm -hmm. as not to detract from the inner faith of the worshippers so all these artistic innovations puff we haven't even mentioned architecture but the same goes there should we have more light in the churches or should it be dark very basic question but it leads to architectural innovations the gothic arch is the best known example absolutely it's all justified by the question what is the best way to worship god Right. So in that and the research that would be conducted in order to come to terms or to make decisions on this, we also know that monasteries have been regularly acknowledged as centers of learning. You said at the beginning, this is where you would go to get educated. So 
what sort of education was being conducted in a monastery and what elements of that education moves beyond the idea of theology? The historian's answer is that theology as a separate subject did not exist because all Mm. learning was in the service of God. So theology only becomes a thing in the later Middle Ages once people are comfortable with separating the study of God with the study from the study of other things. So, Mm -hmm. sorry, I had to make that distinction. But it's actually a very good question that we know surprisingly little about because Mm -hmm. everything that was deemed worthy to be written down comes back to what we think of now as theology. But what we do know is the following. First of all, these monasteries are educational centers, not just for monks. You could just go there as the son of an aristocrat or even as a talented farm boy and learn to read or write, learn a smattering of Latin. This was good business. It's a good investment to make sure the farmers in your lands are know to read a tiny little bit because it helps them self-arbitrate conflicts if they can read their own charters, for example. Yeah. So that's what they would learn. The more talented pupils would go beyond just learning to read and write, and they would be schooled in what we know as the liberal arts, the original liberal arts, which are the trivium, which is considered uh, occupied with language, basically trivium of rhetoric, grammar, and logic. So logic Mm -hmm. being how to set up an argument, not logic in the modern sense of the word. And then the quadrivium, which was more mathematical, including astronomy, mathematics or arithmetic, geometry and music, where music, not so much singing and playing the harp or whatever, but also learning the relation between... Harmony and... Harmony, yeah. So what what do you call the idea that a string that is twice as long has a frequency that is... Ah, yes. Resonance? Resonance, I don't know. So, I, I follow the meaning. Yeah, music, which is in a sense a form of mathematics as well, of, mm-hmm. of, the, of the relation between various entities, the harmony of the spheres. Actually, music would, like, uh, under music, you would learn Pythagorean math, for example. Oh. So that falls under music, but also you learn how to sing. Um, and that sets you up. So after that, it's self study. You can basically do whatever, but this is a perpetual motion machine of learning, depending on whether you stay inside the monastery or not. Once you're out, you lose access to all the books and you have to make do with what you know. Interestingly, there are some indications that especially this quadrivium was also taught to outsiders. This wasn't a purely intellectual endeavor. I I did some work on like an 8th century mathematical handbook, tooting my own horn here, but has long been seen as like, this prepares monks to calculate the Easter date. But mostly it's like questions about if you have a, a rectangular field of this long and this wide and it has to be divided among three sons, how do you do that fairly? Ah! Which, to my mind... And of course, I'm preaching to my own choir here, but in my mind, those seem like questions aimed at teaching basic arithmetics to people who have to work on the land. Mm-hmm. These are questions about pigs being sold at the market. How do you get a fair price for it? Right. How do you divide fields? How do you calculate genealogical relations? There's whole 
string of questions about like if a father marries his son's widow what are their children and like because inheritance rights are being calculated in that way yeah it's it's the absolute like the practical application of those real life pieces yeah and my feeling is that that's a book that shows that this wasn't purely a monkish endeavor these Mm -hmm. were skills that you would need to function as a sort of mid-level manager in an agricultural society. It's also the oldest known version of the problem of the goat, the cabbage, and the wolf. So how to cross a river. (laughs) So apparently that's what people did in the Frankish world. They took their wolf and their goats, these practical problems. It's showing where the the monasteries continue to have that very community-oriented role and function. Yeah, but we think of the liberal arts as this gateway to a scholarly life. But Mm -hmm. I think that they were actually also adapted to agricultural life. It's just that we rarely see it. The only reason we have this particular book is because people long thought it was written by Elquin, whom we haven't Ah. mentioned, but who's another powerhouse of intellectual pursuits in the Carolingian world. And because of that, it was recopied several times otherwise we Mm. probably would never have known but that's also what monasteries did yes absolutely so now for a couple questions that tie directly to into our podcast let's talk about the relationships between monasteries with the church and the popes so if we had to make some judgments here how closely or loosely are monasteries tied with the rest of the church very Closely, but paradoxically, also, it's more of a question of the church being tied to monasteries, depending Mm -hmm. on where you are in time and place. Obviously, a monastery in the outskirts of Rome was more beholden to the church as an institution than a monastery on an island in Brittany somewhere. But at the end of the day, the highest ranking cleric in a monastery would be a priest or at most a bishop who would combine his functions Mm -hmm. but let's say the ideal scenario is that you have an abbot you have a couple of priests and then the rest of the monks they still live in a bishopric the bishop is still the boss of the monastery theoretically i mean the monastery is where also the records are kept for the bishop if he doesn't have a proper canonical community around him so mm-hmm. there is this this power play between the two monasteries are where theological advancements are being made because they don't have to go out and preach and baptize all these people and the, the hassle the hustle and bustle of everyday pastoral work mm-hmm. they don't need to do many of them do but they don't need to so they're the idea people as well which is being communicated back to the bishop who visits them regularly because at the end of the day, they're his responsibility. Mm -hmm. And that's how new ideas seep into the church as well. Right. So how do we extend this to their relationship with the popes, if there is one? (laughs) Well, he's uh, apart from Gregory the Great, in my own research, I'm always mystified by how little, how small a role the popes play in monastic life Mm -hmm. there are several reasons for this first of all just simple infrastructure 
the Pope, yes. what, he can only shout so loudly. There's at some point he stops being heard. It has to be done through archbishops and bishops. And if they just don't tell people inside monasteries what the Pope wants, that's where it ends. So that's one thing. But also, they can afford, these individual communities can afford just not to notice this too much because they do have these long tradition. They can always fall back on the ideal of being isolated, on the ideal of having traditions older than the bishopric they're in, for example. Yes. Because papal communication went through the bishop and... At the end of the day, especially when Benedict, and here now we've almost come full circle, (laughs) at the end of the day, this communication went no further than the abbot. Mm -hmm. Pope tells the bishop something, bishop tells the abbot something, and then the abbot has this creatio. He can decide not to care. He can decide not to tell his monks, because when push comes to shove, the written rule supersedes whatever input they get from outside. Until they become heretics and then they have a problem. (laughs) So this is a period in time that we're covering now where we start to see this independence being granted to monasteries by the Pope, which is perhaps one place where we do see them have at least a little impact. And obviously this comes from the same sort of scenario as we talked about with Odo of Cluny. So aside from that one, why do Popes start granting monasteries independence? This is one of the great, again, I'm I'm mentioning the word paradox, for which I apologize, but one of the great paradoxes of medieval politics is that granting independence actually gives you authority over what you've granted independence to. Right. Mm -hmm. Being the one who gives the land, being the one who gives the immunity actually also makes you the one who can take it away. Yes. So for the popes, the moment they get this, request to be the sole sponsor, the sole bishop responsible for what goes on inside this well-endowed mm-hmm. monastery, they will jump at the opportunity to grant them immunity because paradoxically that gives them an in in the Burgundian political landscape. Yes. Like at this point when Cluny is the only monastery in this particular, what will become a system, the fact that the Pope grants Cluny the immunity gives him access to the monastery. Yes. I hope this makes sense. Yes, because it, it makes them directly beholden to the Pope and only the Pope, and it removes yes. an outside influence, yeah. whereas and, and, and gives them the extension that they were potentially looking for. And yeah. we do see this quite a bit, particularly during this time period, because the Pope is riddled with nothing but petty princes causing issues, and so we a lot easier to have a direct connection with a monastery that they can then reach out to directly instead of having to deal. Yeah, because otherwise it has to go through several steps, several filters of communication. Yeah. And it's so easy. We collectively underestimate how easy it is for vaguely powerful people simply ignore whatever even more powerful people want them to do. Yes, (laughs) Yes, <laughs> absolutely. There's these whole debates about how theological, the religious debates on how much bread a monk should receive every day, how often they should sing hallelujah at several points in the year. Mm-hmm. There's like 
reams of parchment that a pope can devote to this question. But the moment the abbot reads the letter and says, nope, my monks get this much bread, that's the end. Like, there's no way to actually exercise that power. <laughs> they don't have the long breath for it. Yeah. And and that's that's the point. At that point, any abbot can just go into the archive and say, we've been doing this for 300 years. It was never a problem. Why start now? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you have to be a very strong pope with very strong backing, huh? with with tight control over your bishops, they can go inside and actually change things. But the papacy, until, dare I say, Gregory the uh, Seventh, mm-hmm. does not have the infrastructure in place to actually do something beyond suggesting and using his authority. Right. I don't want to make light of this. The Pope, the papacy, Rome was super important for the self-image of these monasteries. Sure. Especially after the Carolingians and their Roman rule of Benedict. Mm-hmm. Right? So. And that explains, too, why it's appealing to the popes to, to grant the independence to the monastery. But it also sort of elucidates why it would be appealing as an abbot to want that immunity. Because, yes, your lord that may be closer or your bishop, if they're a pain and you can have an immunity against them, but also ignore what's coming from the pope. It is very appealing and provides, ironically, that better sense of isolation and independence that originally comes with the sentiment of monastic living. Exactly. This is a super good point that leads to the great big what-if question. After the foundation of Cluny, after the work of Odo, had the papacy actually been functioning at the level it could be, would the (laughs) Cluny order be as powerful as they did? Because they were allowed to operate more or less autonomously for let's call it a century. Right. Because the papacy wasn't really doing that much to actually make good on this immunity. So we're getting closer to the end here. We have about 17 minutes before we run out of time. So I'm going to wrap this up with mm-hmm. two, yeah. with, I think two questions that we can sort of play off of that as our final questions. So given what we're discussing here about having that ability to ignore the Pope and to be more independent. Would a monastery or an abbot of a monastery, would they have considered themselves powerful? Would they have been recognized internally or externally as powerful? And how did this conception or perception of power or lack thereof influence their relationships with those secular and religious authorities? Um, well, this changes from abbot to abbot. Right. On average, I don't think powerful is the word I choose. I would go for abbots of larger monasteries would know they were influential mm-hmm. and they would know that they had authority, they had spiritual authority. They could wield, uh, they could excommunicate, maybe not so much, but they could definitely locally excommunicate. Mm-hmm. troublemakers so not excommunicate at the scale that you usually talk about in your podcast <laughs> but if you just refuse someone access to your particular church they're still in trouble um, so but uh, monasteries abbots were in our period were never powerful because they were just those who pray 
in this system. They Mm -hmm. weren't allowed to fight. They were completely dependent on the protection of the lords against potential evildoers. Let's not forget everything we've been talking about now. Vikings were roaming the land. Yeah, um, it's a good point. Uh, Saracens, Magyars, uh, Slavs, Saxons. Like it wasn't that safe to be a monastery. True. Everything we've been talking yeah. about was this nice, isolated, peaceful bubble, <laughs> but it totally wasn't. So yes, there is that aspect of violence. <laughs> yeah, and again, if you're a monastery in the Empire of Charlemagne you had more elbow room to become powerful. Mm-hmm. But if you're a monastery founded as a missionary outpost deep in a forest in Saxony, you would be very careful not to alienate the people right. with the army. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hope that answered that particular question. <laughs> That's but, a very good point that we should acknowledge but, for sure. One, one thing I think we should not forget is the, uh, the relics are also important here. Yeah. Abbots. I just said, like, you could excommunicate someone, like, bar access to the church, but you could also just bar the saint from exiting the church in okay. a way. De-desecrate the relics. This was sometimes done to punish the entire region. So mm-hmm. rather than excommunicate them, that's a hassle. You have to get the Pope and the bishop involved. You just take the relics out of the altar and throw them in a ditch. <laughs> At that point... That's an extreme way to do it. It did happen. And that was basically a curse for the entire region because they would all lose the protection of that saint. And that's how they wow. would blackmail the local aristocracy. By... That is, yeah, some social bargaining at play in a yeah. very big way. And maybe the aristocrats were like, well, yeah, we all know how it works. But the faithful, the flock, the farmers, the people who actually believed were dependent on the benevolence of the monasteries, the innkeepers who needed the income from the pilgrims, they would pressure yeah. the counts into maybe cutting the monastery some slack. So that would also happen. Not That's so much quite... excommunication, but simply d- literally desecrating your own church. And then again, everything we talked about falls away, mm-hmm. which is huge risk. It's like bluffing to the extreme, but it did happen. Major leverage. I love how personally petty that that is but it, it's, yeah. it's it is an incredible gambit to play and and speaking of gambits i'm going to wrap us up here with our final question which is one about textual criticism we know and we have talked a bit about how the monks are our masters of record keeping they are our archives they are why we have so much in terms of source material And they are therefore in control of the narrative of history in many ways. So how can we talk about how this was used to their advantage and how critical should we be when looking at monastic sources for accuracy? Ah. Well, something I always tell my students is that accuracy is the first thing that goes out the window once you start doing historical research. Like all sources (laughs) are accurate as sources unto themselves. Mm Mm-hmm. That being said, in the context of what we've been talking about, very critical. We need to be super critical of these sources because of this. They are accurate as representations of what the author, what the abbot, what whoever writes this source wants you to remember. Mm -hmm. They were in full control of this. 
And the moment you realize that, a lot of things fall into place. The way these types of narratives are being framed. Are they super pro-Carolingian? That's probably because they want something from the emperor, which we know about. We know what the advantages would be, so it makes sense that that's happening. Right. Obviously, their saint is the best. One of my favorite examples is a monastery in the south of Brittany who writes this elaborate saint. They have a Pope Marcellinus. Oh, uh, yes. The relic of Pope Marcellinus there. Not an uncontroversial one, but they don't mention the controversy. <laughs> they do mention this miracle by a guy who's in, in change for like, he, he's a penitent. So he has to walk around in change until his sins are forgiven. And he goes to Rome and there St. Peter tells him, no, you don't need to go. This is not where your sins will be forgiven. He goes to Jerusalem, goes to visit the Ark on Mount Ararat. He goes to Armenia, goes to Carthage to pray at the grave of St. Cyprian, goes back to Rome. St. Peter again tells him, no, not not good enough. Goes back to Jerusalem. I plotted his pilgrimage on Google Maps, oh and gosh. Google just said no. This is too <laughs> much. Finally, he gets a vision saying, "Oh, you have to go to Pope Marcellinus, oh. and there his sins are forgiven." This is the most extreme case I know of a monastery. The Pope, like people in Carthage, would never read this story, but the people in the surrounding they would hear about this. Like, oh wow, our saint is more powerful than Cyprian and Peter and Noah's Ark and the whole of Jerusalem combined. I love it. And that's who we should go to. This is an extreme case, of course, and very obviously propaganda. <laughs> yes, especially with Pope Marcellinus. <laughs> yes, but we should consider all the more plausible versions of similar stories to be equally as opportunistic. On the flip side, not everything was opportunistic and cynical as well. I think it's easy to forget for modern... I forget this too sometimes. Many of these monks did believe in the ideal. They did believe what they signed up for. Mm -hmm. They were aware that too much falsification would get them in trouble in the afterlife. Yes. So accuracy, no. But they were definitely invested in telling their truth. They were not outright lying. Mm -hmm. they, there was always this belief that they told the story necessary uh, to the benefit of everyone. We see right. this in manuscripts. Once you get, sorry to end on manuscripts again, but once you get into the manuscripts, you see glosses, you see them correcting text. There's the famous example of a manuscript of the rule of St. Benedict, the oldest known complete copy which is full of corrections and it's followed immediately by the second oldest known complete copy which is improved of so course. Even, even the rule of benedict which they allegedly copied more or less directly from the autograph sure they immediately start editing and they do this all the time so once you go into the actual manuscripts you can see that it wasn't this privilege of mm -hmm. being the record keeper was never taken for granted. Right. Yeah. I love that. And I love that as a perfect note to end on for today. So Dr. Rutger Kramer, thank you so much for all of your time. Where can our listeners find you? I'm not as active on Twitter anymore as I used to be for various reasons, but I'm still there. True. <laughs> 
at another aspirin. I mostly do puns these days. <laughs> I'm easy to uh, to just Google. Actually, uh, I have a, a full like page at the Utrecht University website where you can find everything I did with links to the stuff that I wrote. So if you're into that. Yes, you should check it out. Listeners, do that. My inbox is always open for follow-up questions. So, um, Perfect. Well, thank you so to... much for your time. Well, thank you for making the time and for indulging me in talking about it. <laughs> oh, and I fully intend to indulge you further because we're going to talk nunneries. We're going to talk. I, we have lots to talk about monastic orders. There's lots more to come. <laughs> oh, my. Well, best start reading some books then. <laughs> Well, I can wrap this this episode here up and say thank you for listening and goodbye. Pontifax is edited by Greg Gassman. Greg is the host of the wonderful papal history podcast, Popular History, which is history through Pope-colored glasses. At Popular History, you can also find daily content miniseries like Cardinal Numbers, ranking all of the cardinals, and coming up soon, Habemus Pointsum, where Greg and I will discuss all of the papal transitions. If you need to reach Greg, you can do so at popularhistory at gmail.com. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach us at pontifexpod at gmail.com. And we're pontifexpod on all social media platforms. If you'd like to support the show, consider subscribing to Pontifex on Patreon. Checking out our research wishlist at tinyurl.com slash pontifexwishlist or making a one-time donation at paypal.me slash pontifaxpodcast. If you'd like to support us in other ways, rating and reviewing the show on iTunes makes a world of difference. Mm-hmm.